put that in the tithes box. There's places there for questions or prayer requests or different things like that. So you might want to get some information from us or whatever. But we will send you an email and welcome you to the church and all kinds of stuff. Um, I think that's it. Uh, I want to pray before we get started. And in the spirit of what we've been talking about with all these people groups of the world and the unreached people groups of the world, I, part of my prayer might be in Indonesian, if you can stand with that. Father, we thank you for this morning. Your spirit is evident here with us. And we ask for more of it. We ask that you would pour your spirit out on this church. Just flood us with your presence. Anoint us fresh with your presence. Terima kasih Tuhan. Hanya engkau layak untuk menerima puji-pujian dari oleh rakyatmu. Kami sebagai pengikut Isa masih mau memuji namamu dengan segala hati dan kuasa. Kami mau memuji namamu. Dengan segala hormat. Kami mau berjalan di dunia ini sebagai orang-orang yang punya hati Tuhan di surga. Kami mau lihat segala bangsa di dunia ini menjadi pengikut Isa Masih. Dan merasa kebebasan dari dosa dan kematian ini. Engkau sendiri berdarah. Buat segala bangsa ini. Suku-suku yang terabaikan masih terabaikan Pak. Suku-suku yang masih terabaikan mereka Perlu orang untuk pergi dan menginjili mereka dengan jelas, dengan penuh We just want all of these people groups, Father God, to be able to come to you, to worship you And to find the freedom from sin and death that they can find it only in Christ Come Lord Jesus and fill our hearts with your presence, fill our minds with your thoughts, fill our world and order our world in light of kingdom choices in our hearts, Father God. We thank you and in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for letting me do that. It was Every once in a while it's good for me to remember and to pray in Indonesian because it, it helps me to remember why, a great deal of why I'm here and what I do, why I do what I do. Um, bring it, when I pray in Indonesian, it floods me with just emotions of, of, of being there and seeing people and just sort of names and faces and, and the need that is still out there. So, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about throughout Romans has been really uh, good and it's, it strikes me and, and, it's, and I hope it's striking you. Um, 
Even if it's not, I hope it sticks <laughs> to some way. I, you know, I hope it, even if you're not feeling some great thing about it, that, that the Holy Spirit is having it stick in your heart and grow and fester in your heart. And in one way, I think uh, we want the gospel to ruin our world. We want the gospel to ruin our thoughts. We want it to just take over everything that we are. That We want it to ruin our plans. And we want our hearts and our minds to be just overtaking with what God wants us to be about in this world and to order our, our lives in that direction. Um, no, no more, in, <laughs> well, maybe everybody could say this during their time in history, but this world needs peace. This world does need the gospel more than anything. And, um, and that's just wonderful. But I'm, this is not my sermon, so I'm just, I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm going to start going. Um, but throughout Romans, we have been talking, uh, this is the 48th sermon in Romans, and we've been talking about uh, the simple gospel. Paul's been reminding us of the simple gospel. He's been reminding us that of our, our calling as a church to take that gospel to the nations, to all these people groups, all, uh, which is translated from the word ethne, which means these culturally, linguistically unique people groups. And... Um, you remember from last week, Paul referred back to his uh, missionary journey, or he referenced his missionary journey from Jerusalem around about to Illyricum, uh, a distance of about 1,400 miles in sandals, and we talked about that. And if, and if we consider the danger and the exertion that that entailed, that journey, that just that one journey entailed, we can appreciate Paul's efforts to bring the gospel to all the outlying Gentile people groups in the world, right? Uh, in the known world at the time. And if you remember in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, he writes of the hardships that he faced on these journeys. He says, I have been constantly on the move I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea, danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and I've gone without food. I've been cold, I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches, right? So he's, he's got this weight on him about the churches and where they're going and what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. And then furthermore, in Acts chapter 20, he says this, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. <clears throat> and so, which, what we see there is that Jesus certainly came first for Paul, even in the midst of hardship or danger, or even at the thought of losing his own life. So he's, he's just described to all of his readers that he was out doing all this stuff, right? And today he continues by saying in chapter 15, verse 22, this is why I, haven't, uh, or, or, I have often been hindered from coming to you, right? So he's... He's, he's been out doing this dangerous work of the ministry. He's, he's describing all of that, right? Maybe um, they'd been expecting him to show up. You know, he couldn't just text everybody back in Rome and say, you know, I got held up. You know, I'll be there soon and all that kind of stuff. You know, and if somebody's late and you're waiting for them and you're getting angry about it, right? And then they finally show up and you find out that they've actually been doing something heroic like pulling an old lady out of a burning car or something like that. You feel pretty sheepish about getting angry, don't you? 
And maybe that's, you know, maybe they were all standing around miffed at Paul because he hasn't shown up, he hasn't visited them or whatever until he writes this, since that may be what has happened. But he plans to come now. Verse 23 continues, But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I enjoyed I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's desire for many years had been to visit Rome uh, and then move on to Spain, right? And, and note he's been held up for years. If you can count all three of his missionary journeys together, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 12, 13 years uh, before he was arrested. Uh, and even things happened after that. But it, it wasn't that he just, on these journeys, he didn't just go out for a hike, you remember we talked about the John Muir Trail, and that was 220 miles, 230 miles, or whatever it was, and it took us about three weeks. You know, the, the what, do you, what do you call it, the Appalachian Trail, 2,200 miles or so, takes you about six or eight months or whatever to finish. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how long, but, you know, Paul doesn't just go out there and, you know, and walk around for a number of months and then hand out Bible tracts. They didn't have Bible tracts back then, but if he could have, you know, and then come home, that's not what he was doing necessarily. You know, it, it, he's, he spent time in various places that he went. He was teaching. Um, he was discipling people. He built up and he helped to launch the local church in these areas. He did a lot of work. He traveled with others discipling them along the way. A lot of times he's got this list of people he's traveling with. And at times he leaves some of them there to develop the church even further. And so we know that he stayed a year and a half in Corinth. We know he stayed two years in Ephesus and probably significant time in other areas depending on the situation and the need. And that tells us something significant because uh, he says he has no more work left in these regions, right? Right? Well, it's obvious that he hasn't evangelized every single soul in those regions. It's obvious that, that hardship hasn't swayed Paul in the past, so why would it sway him from continuing work in those regions? That, you know, what's the reason? What, you know, how could this work be done for him in those regions? Why does he not have any more work to do? Because there's obviously plenty more work to do in those regions. And the answer is that Paul wasn't just an evangelist. Paul was a church planter, all right? And there's a difference. Or one, you know, an evangelist is part of a church planter, right? Much like what we did here with 6-8 about a decade ago. We, we didn't just come, down, come to town and walk through town and, you know, witness to a few, bunch of, few people out there and, and then leave and then keep walking on to Philadelphia or something like that. We stayed and we planted a church, We started this place, right? And so when we are long gone and we're pushing up daisies someplace in a field someplace, this church hopefully will still be going on evangelizing and witnessing to this region, to this community, and even beyond it. Paul's work is done in these regions not because every single person in those regions has heard the message of Christ and accepted it and become a Christian, but because he's, he's, he's planted and he's built up a healthy church there who have leadership and structure and who at least as, uh, who, who will last far into the future to evangelize their own peoples. That was my purpose in Lampung when I went there. So missions work 
isn't just about sharing the message of Jesus. It's about taking small groups of people who initially respond to that message and collecting them into local bodies with the same heart and the same kingdom vision that we see in the Scriptures. Therefore, in in our ongoing discussion of all these unreached people groups, one one of them is reached not when there's just 10 believers there or 20 believers or even 50 believers or even 100 believers there within that people group, but when there is an ample amount of Christian churches, thriving local churches, local bodies of Christ, they're enable, they're growing and they're able to evangelize their own people within their cultural borders. That's when a, a people group is reached. And you need to understand these things because this is our job in the world right now. Jesus' last concern, or last command, was Paul's first concern uh, in these regions. And what was his last command? We've read it before. We'll read it again. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to to obey everything that I have commanded you, and I'll be with you till the end of the age. Right? So Jesus says to us, last command, first concerned. And so in succession, we, we see firstly that somebody has to go. Actually, it's, it's, it's actually probably translated more clearly as as you are going. In other words, as the church goes about doing this, goes to do this, right? So there's an assumption, there's, there's an implication that the church is always about reaching these people groups. That's what it says to us. But, you know, in, in logistical reality, we got to send somebody out sometimes, Right? We're all sitting here in Ardmore. We want to send someplace, someplace, somebody someplace else to reach another people group, you know? Which also means that we have to be good senders. We have to financially be behind them. We have to prayerfully be behind them. We have to encourage them. We have to love them well as they go out to do that job. And then as they're out there to make disciples, people have to have the gospel shared with them because the, the gospel comes by hearing the word of God, right? Hearing the story and the message of Christ. And the scripture state, states, who we go to, we go to the nations, we go to, to these people groups of the world, and we've talked about it in the past, that there's 7,000 people groups out there, or close to 7,000 people groups out there, who have still yet to be reached with the gospel, out of 16,500 in the world about right now. But outside of evangelizing these people, what do we do? Well, Jesus says, baptize them. Now, baptize is much more than just dunking somebody in water. The baptism is, is pregnant with a lot of, 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 of stuff, <laughs> right? It's just pregnant with a lot of stuff. It means that we see these people identify their lives with Christ. That means all of their worldview, their values, their behavior, their, their, their beliefs, all this stuff come in alignment, alignment with Christ. And if you think about a, the psyche of a person, that's a lot. It takes a lot of time. In the early church, People wouldn't be baptized for at least three years, partly because of the danger involved with it. Like if you got baptized, you, would be, you could be killed, so they wanted the people to make sure that they understood what they were doing. But it also means that they were really bringing them through this great deal of understanding of what it means to be baptized. Because the whole person, when you get up there and get dunked in the water, that's just a symbol of what's already happened to you inwardly. And it means a, a great deal, Right? So baptism is is pregnant with a lot. 
So people identify their lives with Christ. They assimilate themselves into the body of Christ, which is the church. They, they come into this thing, and, and we need to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded, which is a lifetime of work. You guys come here every Sunday. We preach a sermon. You go to community groups. You study the word together. You do this on your own in your own quiet times. That's a lifetime of work, understanding what Jesus said to us, what he's commanded to us. And if we think about all that that, that entails, it's, it's quite a lot. It really is quite a lot. And that work ranges from prayer to evangelism to structuring to training to preaching to teaching to instilling rites of passage in people's lives to directing to redirecting to confronting sometimes in love and identifying and recruiting and modeling and training and deploying and discipling leaders and you could keep going it's a lot and the ultimate goal for Paul and for other church planters in the world and for all of us is that, that to see a, a viable local body of believers who has the heart to grow and reproduce itself in its own context and beyond to the nations once more. And if I can embarrass you for a minute, my sister told me she went out and bought that Operation World book and she's learning about peoples and she's learning about like the peop- you know, people that she knows in her life and how they are from different places in their culture and all that kind of stuff, commendable. Because that's we want to do that. We want to understand people. We want to understand how to, how to talk to them, how to love them, how to express the gospel to them in all kinds of ways. That's great, right? That's great. Uh, where was I? <laughs> so, Romans, that's right. So, Paul... <laughs> So Paul plants, planted these churches and he developed leadership to see them flourish in, 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 in the world, right? To, to keep going. In Acts 20, there's this one instance where we see clearly where he calls the Ephesian elders together and reminding them of how he's lived among them, uh, reminding them of all the things that he's taught them, and he challenges them by saying, keep watch over yourselves, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church, God, church of God, which he, he bought with his own blood, right? So he's calling these leaders to love these people well and to lead them well. And then he leaves them to go and he, and he, uh, continue, and he continues the work someplace else, right? And this is the reason why we have all of these letters written to the churches across the regions, these epistles of the New Testament, because they are issues that Paul and others wrote to the churches about, because they are issues that we all deal with all the time. The, you, if you ever notice, the epistles, even though some of the language is different, like we don't have Pharisees around us right now, right? We don't have Judaizers. We don't use that term within our churches. But the essence of what those people are is timeless. And those things we deal with all the time. So that's why it is the Scripture. That's why it is the Word of God. Because we go back and we, we apply that constantly over and over and over again. I'm really going off my notes this morning. But um, it's Paul's way of checking in, right? It's, it's his way of checking in with these churches and addressing issues which, uh, with these growing churches. Since left to our own accord... We are subject to the law of entropy, aren't we? We really kind of forget things. We, things kind of break down. A, a leader can press on an issue for a while in, in a crowd and, and people kind of get it and they all get into it and they start doing it and they start practicing it and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes when I preach certain things and I preach them at first, 
Nobody, it seems like nobody cares. But a year later, after we've preached it every Sunday, people start to, to hear it, and they start to practice it. The, some leadership circles, they'll say you have to say something a thousand times for people to hear it once, right? That's a little frustrating for leaders, <laughs> but, but it is true. It's, we, it's just the way that we are. I do it, you do it, we all do it, right? Now we're at um, Romans, right, Chuck? <laughs> But we can press on these issues, but we, we, if, if, as soon as a leader stops pressing on an issue, sometimes the importance of that issue just kind of drains away. For instance, in leadership development, right? You know, uh, in, in a church, we must always be recruiting and developing leadership. In, in the vineyard, we, uh, you might he- have heard it or you might, you might hear it now that I pointed it out to you, but we boil it down to an, a- an acronym, uh, IRTDM, Right? identify, recruit, and train, and deploy, and monitor. So identification, just that one thing is pregnant with a lot of, uh, of thought behind it because you want to identify people in leadership development that have a heart for the kingdom of God. They are passionate about Christ. They are uh, in line with your vision and your values and where you're going, and they're not going to argue that on the team. They're a team player. They, you know, all kinds of things. There's all kinds of little steps we look for in a leader, right? And if you ever want to talk about what IRTDM really means, I would love to sit down and walk you through it because it's interesting. It is, it is interesting. But, you know, identification, and then you find a position that is, is right for that person and their gifting, and you recruit them to that, and you talk them through it, and then you ch- continually train them to do that, and then you deploy them on their own, you model it for them first, and you walk with them as they do things, and, and all this kind of stuff. And then over time, you monitor them. You just keep them going forward, Right? Because they're probably doing a great job and you just need to like, it's like being bumpers on the, the bowling lanes, right? You know, you just want to keep it going right down the center lane. But, you know, what we see in the scriptures is that Jesus wasn't some beatnik hippie of the 1960s saying, well, man, let's just go out there and love each other. Let's just, oh, don't worry, you know, just go do it. That's not what he was saying. That's not what Jesus was like. Jesus was Jewish, He was Jewish, and you never forget that. He was Jewish, and he operated within Judaism, within a religious structure and a culture. And he didn't hate it. He didn't hate it. He preached in the temple, and he respected it. And he calls us to do the same. He was moving his disciples to develop a religious structure which cared for people and nurtured the spiritual growth of people and would reach out to the nations as a community, not just as single individuals. And that's because faith is about community. You can't be a person of faith alone. It doesn't work that way. You can't have community without order and leadership and structure. So church haters out there, they are immature. They don't understand. Don't listen to that. <laughs> it's, it's garbage. It is garbage. And it's, you know, it happens throughout history over and over again. But the church stays because the church is called by God. You know, although our acceptance, our salvation in Christ isn't based on what we do or how well we behave or live life with Jesus and all that kind of stuff, we still enter into a community that is in the pursuit of holiness and the pursuit of a calling, right? 
And there are things that we're, we're, we're moving forward, we're going ahead, we're going forward in something. We are building on something, right? So Jesus isn't all upset and heaven sitting up there, you know, all upset that we organized into, a, into, into like uh, the organized church. He's glad for that. He is glad for that. And I think he glories in the expression of the church, all the various expressions of the church, all these various bodies which share Christ at the center of who they are, but they, although they may look different on the outside, the Lampung church is going to look different than our church. The Uyghur church is going to look different than the Lampung church. The Batak church is going to look different than the Arab church. Right? The Fulani church. They're all going to look different, but they share Christ at their center, Right? They're intimately tied to one another and help each other when needed, which one example he cites in the next set of verses. Boy, I'm like intense this morning, aren't I? (laughs) Oh, verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia, if I pronounce that correctly, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them uh, their material blessings. So after I I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessings of Christ. Now, right there, that little passage, to be honest, these are passages that pe- preachers skip when they do topical sermons all the time. When we, do, when we march through a book, it forces you to look at that. And when I first came to this passage this week, I'm like, what else am I going to say? You know, like, oh, this is so difficult. Like, but as I got into it, I'm like, wow, I'm getting pretty excited about this. Right? In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul describes the Macedonian churches and their giving. He says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. So this poor Macedonian church is under severe trial. And their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. And it's, and it's a statistical fact that, that the poorer you are, the more giving you are, mostly. Now, that's not always true. Some very wealthy, very giving people in this world. But, you know, it seems like sometimes poverty, just people understand another person's need when they have need themselves, right? It's just kind of strange. But but that's what's happening here. Verse 3, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. They wanted to, it, they considered it a privilege to give their money to, to, the, to the Jerusalem church. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will, the will of God also to us. One sign of a healthy church and a healthy Christian is giving. A giving heart, Right? Maybe it's a topic people don't like to talk about. I am unashamed. I couldn't care less if you get mad at me because I talk about money. I don't care. I don't care. It is a spiritual issue. (laughs) It really is. But believe me, I don't necessarily always like to give my money. (laughs) It's not always fun sometimes, right? 
but I'm, I'm working on it because I understand it's a spiritual issue. I'm not a natural good giver. I'm really not. But one of the requirements for leadership at 6-8 and even membership here is that we are tithing peoples, that we are giving back to the church. And that's not something that we monitor officially, like we're not going through the books like, mm-hmm, Chuck gave this much money last month and so-and-so gave me this. No, we're not doing that. But we do keep tabs on it a little bit. Like when it becomes, in, like when we start to see a pattern or an issue, we address it when we need to because it's important. When someone isn't giving financially, it reveals that there's something going on them spiritually which is unhealthy. And when I say giving... I don't mean the occasional leave God a tip in the offering plate. <laughs> you know, like you come to church every once in a while and you, you drop 20 bucks. Oh I, oh, I happen to have 20. You put it in the offering plate. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about consistent giving in line with what the scriptures urge us to. And that is 10% at least, if not more, of our income to the local church that God has called us to. Um, I know of another church who had to ask their worship leader to step out of that position. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Since they began to notice... No, I totally am kidding. <laughs> Since they began to notice over a long period of time that their worship leader was not giving assent to the church. Yeah, BMW motorcycle, right? Yeah. No, it's the vegan thing that he get, Vinny gets upset with me about. <laughs> And so they, they asked their worship leader, what's, you know, what's up? You know, you're a leader in this church. You should be modeling this to the church. What's up? Why aren't you giving? And he became belligerent, became really angry right off the bat. And, he, and it revealed a pride in him and, and a hold that money had over this man's heart, which ran very deep. And in a short time, he became so incensed that he left the church. And he's still mad about this 10 years later. See, be careful. Be careful when you meet the person that says, oh yeah, the church. They're all about getting your money, aren't they? Be careful about listening to that person and giving credence to their thoughts. Because that person is most likely immature in their faith, if they're even faithful at all. They are most likely prideful and they are unable to understand the deeper issues of the heart as concerned with the spiritual aspects of material wealth. A healthy church is a giving church. It's made up of individuals who love to give. Made up of people who want to bless others and they realize the need is there to do so, right? That's an important thing in a church. Even in their own poverty, they gave willingly, which reveals a real, true, deep faith in the Lord. That's exciting. It's exciting. It's so exciting to to give sometimes, just to see what, what happens. I wish I had a story. I would... If I had thought about it, I would have found a, dug up a good story about that. But maybe you have one, and you could tell, each, tell it, it to each other, right? It's, it's interesting to note that much of Paul's writing in Romans has been to bring Jewish Christians around to understand the detrimental nature of the legalistic mind, you know, just following the rules and, you know, being, being uh, sort of hard-nosed with each other, that they needed to live sort of out of Christ's righteousness and not out of their own self-righteousness. That, that to operate out of grace, right, that, that that's what they're called to, not measuring uh, themselves and others by the yardstick of the law, right? That's, that's a lot of what Paul's been writing to us in Romans is about that. 
which meant realizing that God has always called them to bring this message to the Gentile nations. That, that, and this, this love offering from the churches in Greece was an expression of love from Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. It may have even been that, and see, remember, the Jewish Christians are the ones that had the problem with the Gentiles. So, but the Gentiles are the ones giving to the Jews in this situation, at least, right? And it may have been that Paul was writing this, you know, at the end of his letter to say to these Jewish Christians, see, these Gentile Christians are exhibiting faith. They're, they're loving you well. Love them back. Love them back well. But he also, he also points out that the Gentiles also owe a great debt to the Jewish Christians for their heritage and their stewardship of the word of God, the scriptures and, and traditions and all this stuff in their past history. That if it weren't for Israel, these guys wouldn't understand any of this stuff, right? And so it, it helped this poor Jerusalem church in a time of need, but it brought both sides together, didn't it? It was humbling for both of them. So what we see there that is that a sharing, giving spirit unifies people. It's really hard. Like, if, if uh, anybody in here just gave me $1,000, it'd be really hard for me to be mad at you. Right? Let's be honest. Somebody gives you some money. It's like, whoo, thank you. You know? It's, it's, I mean, it's just hard to, when somebody is giving towards you, to be angry with them or to dislike them. Or you, you tend to like, they give you something, you tend to overlook a lot. In Indonesia, we, we dealt with like this, this culture where you gave the king gifts, right? You, you bought favor. And, I, you know, in the beginning, I was always like, oh, that's, that's wrong. But over time, I was like, wow, maybe there's some wisdom in that. That I'm showing kindness, that I'm loving, that I'm giving. And that, that that turns his favor towards me and all that kind of stuff. But again, I'm going off my notes here. It unifies people. It brings them together. There's something. And giving is contagious. It is absolutely contagious. The Corinthian church began it, right? And as Paul described their giving spirit to the Macedonians, he says to the Corinthians, your enthusiasm is, has stirred most of them to action. So a giving church is a contagious blessing. But what are some of the other results of our giving? Well, this is certainly not exhaustive. This is not the central point of the sermon this morning to go into all this giving. But we can briefly look at 2 Corinthians 9. It says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. In other words, you know what sowing and reaping is, right? Take a handful of seed and you sow it, right? You throw it out into the dirt. So you take a big handful and you throw a lot out there, you're going to get a lot of stuff growing. You take just a little bit of pinch and you throw it out there, only a little bit's going to grow, right? Pretty common sense, right? Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So this is a, a, a conversation that you're having with the Holy Spirit, right? Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now that's not just like trying to like, you know, manipulate you in the giving. That's a truth. God loves a cheerful giver, right? Well, I don't want to just, I've said before, it's hard for me to give. I don't naturally do that well. But I want to get to that point. I want to practice it. 
Sometimes you have to practice something until it starts to feel good, right? I want to practice it so that I can really do well at it. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That sounds like a blessing to me, right? See, there's a tie to our spiritual growth with how willing we are to be giving people, right? If we sow generously, we reap generously. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to be rich, That's not exactly what it's saying there. It means that there's a correlation, especially with our character and our spiritual formation, and even sometimes with our our material blessings, right? A giving spirit is part of the holistic picture of a mature believer. In other words, well, in verse 10 it says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And I thought it was interesting there that there's this, there's this, there's not a, like a break between the spiritual and the, the, the physical, right? There's something about our spiritual well-being being blessed here, but there's also still this like material blessing that we might receive, right? And so, you know, it's enlarging our harvest of righteousness. So if there's this idea that if I use everything that I have, even my money, to bless the kingdom of God, that there's a harvest of righteousness, that I will see, see people coming in favor to Christ. Do I use my money to see people come to Christ? Now, I'm not saying buying Christians. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying being a blessing, being a giving person to people around me so that they would be more apt to be open to hearing what Christ is to them, right? Uh, so being a giving person is, is a step and a part of being a whole well-rounded person in Christ. Our attitude of giving will come out in every good thing that we set our minds to, right? Since he continues in verse 11, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, uh, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So blessing is meant to be turned around and poured out to others. So even if I bless people and God blesses me materially back, what do I do with that? Go to Hawaii? No. I bless back. It's just a constant going out, all right? I'm just constantly blessing, right? It's not here. There is nothing in the scriptures that says, well, God's going to bless you. You become rich and you can drive this and t- you'll get this house and you can just live high on the hog. There's nothing in the scriptures that says that. The health and wealth gospel is an absolute total lie, right? I am blessed to be a blessing, right? I am blessed to be a blessing. So we give we're blessed, then we turn around and bless. It's cyclical. And an attitude of giving, giving isn't always pra- or of giving isn't only practical in helping the poor, you know, in helping others, but it's literally an act of worship to God. Verse 12, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And finally, um, it's an act of encouragement. It's an act of testimony. It's an act of evangelism. And it brings favor um, of others towards you in their prayers towards you. Verse 13, because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you 
because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Isn't that nice? So in conclusion, uh, we see that Paul was much more concerned about the kingdom among the Gentile nations than he was even for his own safety or even his own life. Right? That he was more, more than just an evangelist. He was a church planter. Which means that he was there to develop vibrant bodies of believers, forming them into a church which shares the identity with, under Christ with all the other churches throughout uh, the world and all its cultural expressions of faith within the various nations that it, that it resides. And that was a task that was fraught with a lot of work. IRTDM, for one, right? The, he, had, he had to identify, he had to recruit, he had to train, he had to deploy, he had to monitor people. You know, leadership, he had to do all that with leadership to make sure that these churches stayed on task with kingdom initiatives because we are subject to entropy, Right? We kind of break down if we don't think about it. Right? And that as churches uh, develop, we learn that, that as churches develop and mature, they organize with leadership and structure to be a blessing, and that one outcome of that is to be a giving body, blessing others around it. That's why it, it is so evil, and it is so disheartening when you have a church over years develop a heart of legalism or a heart that, like, like the leadership is stealing money, or, or doing something, like just abusing their posts, right? Abusing their power, and that seeps into the church. Because uh, institutionally, we should be reflecting Christ just as much as individually we should be reflecting Christ. And that, man, that is so hard to see, see that happen. Just love that kid's hair. This, <laughs> yeah, that is a good haircut right there, boy. Um, <laughs> so that leaves us with two simple questions this morning. Are we grateful for the leadership that God has established in order to see the kingdom move forward in our local church? Are we grateful for them? Are we working for them and not against them? Are we speaking well of them. And I'm not saying that just because I'm the pastor, right? I, I mean, you may leave here and go to another church, you know, someday. So you need to think, take this to that church, right? I, I'm talking because I'm part of the church. I want to do that. I, I have people above me. Bruce Latshaw is the overseer of this region. Then there's John Elmer and blah, 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 all the way up to Phil Strout in, in the American thing, you know, like the whole country. I have people that I answer to as well. And I want to bless John Elmer. I want to bless Bruce Latshaw. I want to follow well. I don't want to fight. I don't want to kick against the goads and fight my leadership. I want to bless them. I want to be kingdom-minded along with them. I want to walk with them well. I want to care for them. And I, I'll tell you honestly, you guys do do this really well. I, Kim and I, we can honestly say this is the best church we've ever attended. Ever, ever attended. You guys love me really, really, really well. Even when you confront me, you love me well. You really do. I, and I, I'm, I am grateful for that. But it's something we have to continually press on, right? We have to continually think about. And secondly, the second question that we, we leave with today is, are we giving cheerfully to the work of the ministry? You know, we, they say that in America, uh, on average, evangelicals, I, I think, give 2.5%. Or uh, that might be across the board in America, 2.5%, and that evangelicals give a little bit more, maybe 4 4.5%. You kind of know this stuff. 
You know, so, so, but, but still, that's well below 10%, right? And uh, uh, one of the questions that I'd love for you to wrestle with, let, let's say you, know, you have a church, and this is a question actually that ruined the, seed, the community group leaders, whatever. But this is a question I gave posed to them to pose to the community groups this week is, if we had a, a, a budget of like $200,000 a year, and that is based on 2.5% of giving in a, in a body, by the way, I haven't looked up our, our numbers and all that kind of stuff. You know, this is not based on 6-8, in other words. But let's say, let's say it was based on 2.5% of giving. What if that church gave 10%? What if everybody in that church gave 10%? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How far would we be able to go? What would we be able to do in this community? You know, like somebody gives me $1,000, and I'm more inclined to say, wow, yeah. Use my car, <laughs> you know. What if the leadership of this community, we could, we could bless people with financial giving? And they would say, yeah, six, eight, do anything you want in this community. We're behind you, right? I'm not saying to be illegal or underhanded. Or I, I'm talking out in the open. We're just being a blessing. And that that turns people's hearts. They want to listen. They want to help. They want to bless you back. So what if that happened? And so what if we grew in that? What if we continued to grow in that as a church? And, and we just even, uh, what's the word? You went above and beyond that. I'll say above and beyond that. Above and beyond 10%. We just kept giving and giving and we, we found so much joy in it and we were experiencing so much blessing that, that we just kept pouring it back out. What if my vision to actually support a whole team in Indonesia or, or in uh, Afghanistan or Pakistan or, or whatever it is, for the, wherever they are, for the gospel would go forth. What if we could do that financially, even as a smaller church, right? I get excited about that thought. (laughs) But if we stand in the way of leadership, or if we're non-active in our giving, we hamstring the work of the kingdom. I don't know why God has limited himself to working through us. And I don't know why it takes us a thousand times to hear it once. I don't know why it is so difficult sometimes. I don't know why it seems so slow. I don't know why there are still 7,000 people groups unreached 2,000 years later. None of that makes sense to me. But it will not stop us from moving forward. We want to do this well. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much that you are a God who has blessed us. I mean, I think every person in this room even if we're feeling the pinch of finances right now, we could, we could honestly say that as we look out on the world now, that we are blessed more than most people in this world. That we are at the top of the food chain, so to speak, as far as finances go. That even if we don't make that much as individuals in this room, we benefit from the wealth of the place that we live in. And, and we don't want to feel guilty about that, Lord Jesus. That's not something we say to feel guilty about, but we do say it, Father God, because we want to be responsible with it. For that person that has been given much, much is expected of them. And we want to be living up to those expectations. I've been forgiven much. I want to love much. Father God, I pray that you would break down our first world problem attitudes. That we'd throw all that out. And that we could see ourselves as people that have been impoverished by sin. And that 
we have a God who is wealthy and has filled our accounts with unlimited funds that has taken us to the next level and will never drop us. And therefore, why not share it? Why not pour our hearts out, pour our words out, pour our, our, our lives out, and pour our resources out to see other people experience this freedom in Christ as you have blessed us with. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh, we are going to pass the tithe box. <laughs> Seems kind of funny to pass that now after all that talk. <laughs> but we are going to pass the tithe box, and as we've been speaking, it is a serious privilege.